Cabaret on the Couch is a Little Larrikins production. Cabaret on the couch. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, today I am talking about originality with comic, singer, compare, and judge on BBC One's All Together Now, all round showman par excellence and queen of cabaret glamour, Bolus. Welcome to my couch. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Thanks, Nikki. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How is your lockdown? Um, so I, I'm really uh, interested in this, actually, because um, I got very angry this week because of, well, like a lot of people, I'm, I probably got angry because I'm scared and I'm partly scared because I'm self-employed and I'm very, very upset about how we've been treated so far somehow creatives will be shafted more than everybody else and it will be it will be the token gesture that just about means that we don't riot if mm. we were allowed to leave the house to have a riot you know i read something earlier this year that for the first time in modern history the arts and entertainment have taken over from agriculture in the amount of money they bring into this country. And if you think of all the subsidies that farming and farmers get and the amount of time we spend listening to the radio and the television and being told about farming in this country and the importance of it and the protecting of it, if you balance that with the amount of time that's spent with the media focusing on the arts and protecting that, or I mean, I nearly laughed saying that. I mean, I've never, <laughs> never heard anyone mm. talking about how we should protect the arts or how we should, you know, subsidize it and the importance of it. Nobody that isn't an artist themselves. I've never heard anybody in my whole life do it. And it, I helped get these wheels, make these wheels turn. I employ mm. a lot of people. Your show was about, is about, because it will still go ahead um, at some point. It will, yeah, it yeah. will. It's about Victoria Wood. And um, I think it's really interesting when one is creating a cabaret show to think about how you make someone else's work still be original in your own voice without, you know, just carbon copying. My show is a two-hander with a pianist who also has a lot of lines as a sort of stooge for me. So it's a, it's a one-man show with two men in it, basically. And, and one of the first lines I say in the show um, is that we are here tonight to prove what many of you have known for decades, that it takes two men to do the job of one woman, <laughs> half as well. Um, so from, the point of view, from that point of view, it's already original because I don't play any instruments in this show. I can't play the piano. And so someone else plays the piano. And that means I'm, uh, I'm afforded the luxury of taking Victoria's wonderful songs, which I'm which I've been passionate about since the age of 10 um, and doing them in my own way and in a way where playing the piano doesn't impede me. I mean, she could deliver them brilliantly whilst playing and singing. It, it wasn't ever like you felt, oh, she's stuck behind that piano. I wish she could get out and be more effervescent. But I don't have uh, a great big machine between me and the audience. And with cabaret, 
and the idea of working without a fourth wall between you and an audience, the less obstructions there are between you and them, the better. And what was so, the process like creating this show? Were you doing it on your own? Were you doing it with the pianist? Was it? No. So I have been friends and cabaret colleagues with a very talented, amazing theatre maker called Sarah Louise Young. For who I was just talking to about you. Uh, talking, ah! <laughs> talking to. <laughs> yeah. really? That was fantastic. Just, just now, she said that uh, your mother was responsible for her very first job and that she's been stealing jobs from you ever since. <laughs> she has, it's true. So Sarah Louise and I have been friends for... 33, 32 years this year. Um, we both lived in Kent and grew up there. And she is very well known for a number of shows which are about real people, like this show of mine uh, is. So she did one on Julie Andrews called Julie Madly Deeply, and she's done one on Kate Bush called An Evening Without Kate Bush. So when I had the idea to create this show, which is called Looking for My Friend, the music of Victoria Wood, uh, it seemed obvious to me to ask an old friend who had experience in writing and performing, I guess, what one might think of as biographical uh, work, um, if she would be interested in being involved. So it's been really lovely and I, uh, I, to work with her and to play with her. And I've really just done everything she says because she's done it with such class and professionalism and success in the last couple of decades that I was like, I want to do your model and I want you to tell me who to phone, where to go, what venue to choose, how long to make this show. And that's really interesting because I'm a control freak and so is she. So that's really, <laughs> and also we're working, I mean, not that we've had any problems yet, touch, touch wood, but <laughs> we're working really hard to obviously maintain a very important friendship at the same time. So, you know, that there's definitely moments where that creeps in you go, what was that? Did yeah. we just have a fight? Or did we just have a, just a tiny little disagreement? Or am I being too annoying? Am I needing too much from you? <laughs> so there's a, there's a whole plinth to be, yeah, uh, balanced around with, with her. And she is being tremendously generous of her time and her knowledge. And I'm delighted to be doing it with her. It's really nice. It must be so wonderful to come together on a professional level like this with a childhood friend. She told me that you taught her cabaret because you just wanted to do shows all the time when you were younger. So there were you guys, you know, I can imagine you two, 13 years of age, you know, with your little costumes and well, like you say about originality, some of the songs in Looking For My Friend, I first performed as a 14-year-old kid on in the village hall in the tiny village that I lived outside, just outside Canterbury in Kent, uh, in a variety show that Sarah was also in. And obviously, that's over 30 years ago. So the world has changed and I have changed. And yet the potential for rocking up and doing it the way you did it over 30 years ago is still there. You still have to work at making sure that doesn't happen, you know? So as well as trying to make the show original and, and be my offering of Victoria Wood's work, uh, I need it to be 
Paul 2020, Paul the 45-year-old man's offering of the work as opposed to that 13-year-old boy. Or when I was a drag queen and did it 20 years ago on a boat on the Thames and I was called Trinity Million and I was in a wig and I didn't have a beard and I was full three layers of makeup and a, and a sequin dress. That, that was a very different person and literally a very different voice. I used to have the keys of all the songs changed for me back then because I wanted uh, so much to seem authentic as a female. I, I thought of myself as a female impersonator rather than a drag queen when I was Trinity. And so again, you, that same song circles back and you go, and you sit down with your pianist and they go, so this is up a fourth. I don't feel like you need this to be played up a fourth. And I'm like, oh no, that's from when I had a dip. And I went, that's from when I was someone else. I mean, yeah. Literally somebody else. So yeah, the the originality thing for me is about honouring the original and being in the here and now, speaking from the middle-aged man that has been wherever they've been, has seen wherever they, whatever they've seen, and talking to whoever is in front of them, whoever shows up. Mm. Have you found that um, as a performer you've felt the pressure of being original and the pressure of trying to show your original voice and your original costume and your original take on things? Because I find that in the entertainment industry you have to stand out, you have to try or there is you know, there is the expectation that you should be doing something fabulous and different and brilliant. Have you felt that? Because you've obviously been in the industry for, you know, for over 30 years and, you know, you've been through many years and clearly many changes to yourself and, and your performance and your persona. And, you know, have you felt, if you felt like you've tried to modify or have you always been like, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm doing it. And, you know, everyone can fuck themselves basically. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's really funny, actually. Um, there's this meme that goes around online. It's a, it's a, I believe it's a quote from Helen Mirren. And the meme is a picture of her looking gorgeous as she is. And, uh, and it says, uh, uh, I, one thing I wish I'd done is tell more people to fuck off. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of my vlogs, I talk about this Helen Mirren quote because I like it. I've always liked it. And I like her, don't get me wrong. But this idea, of, oh, I wish I'd told more people to fuck off. Well, when you get to 70 and you've, you know, been as successful as Helen Mirren has been and is, you can say something like that without realizing that mm, you wouldn't be who you are today or have got where you were today if you had told more people to fuck off. And unfortunately, I have spent most of my life telling people to fuck off because I am my mother's son and because I can't be anybody else. I have to be true to myself. And I might have done a lot more, got a lot further or had a bigger profile. Not that I'm unhappy with the profile I've got, but I do, I do tell people to fuck off quite a lot. I did a, I workshopped the musical Taboo um, when it was being written by Boy George back in, I guess this was about 20 years ago now. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience to be part of because we were in this rehearsal room and there was a kitchen adjoining the place where we're all that sort of traditional sitting in a semicircle with a pianist um, at the end. And then there's the space in front of you if, if you are getting up to share. And we're all sitting with these lyrics 
uh, which are handwritten and then photocopied, handwritten Boy George lyrics to a brand new song. And we're singing it and working out harmonies. And he comes out of the kitchen halfway through with verse two and goes, there's verse two, and puts it on the piano. It's like, so exciting! And I was creating the role of Philip Salon in the workshop process. And I, I'm, I'm picking my words very carefully because some people will know that Philip Salon's a real person. So I can't obviously create Philip Salon. Philip Salon did that. And, uh, and he's an extremely big personality, very opinionated, and, uh, and, and his look is, is huge and, uh, and, and a great big statement. And he and George have known each other for most of their lives. And he's an important part of the story of Taboo. And for those people that have seen Taboo the musical, they'll know that the Philip Salon character is basically the narrator that takes you around the whole process. So I'm meeting all these famous people. I'm working with Matt Lucas and Boy George and, and I'm playing Philip Salon in this workshop and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be in the West End and I'm going to be a star. And then George says to me one day, he says, so obviously you know that this is based on a real person and we have to make sure that all the people that are mentioned in the show uh, Steve Strange, Marilyn, and and Philip Salon, to name just three. You know, we have to make sure that they're happy with the content and that the fact that their lives, to some extent, are in this story too. So he said, so Philip's going to be around and he is going to be part of this process. And he sort of, you know, in not so many words, sort of suggested that I should just take his advice, listen to him, and, you know, and if he wanted something done a certain way to make sure that I bore that in mind. And I just didn't. I just didn't. I was, I, was all, I was all but rude to the man. I was just like, because what I did was I, I went, I'm not going to be told how to play this role. Even from the man who... <laughs> who <laughs> was by John. But Oops. Why, couldn't I, why couldn't I have just gone, yeah, of course, of course this is important to you. And I would now, this, I, was, I was very stupid when I was younger. I'm pretty stupid now, but I was very stupid when I was younger. And I just got, I felt quite trapped, scared and out of my depth in the whole situation. And my reaction was to be a bit, well, I don't need you. I don't need you to tell me how to do this. This would be my interpretation, my version of, of you. And, uh, and at no point had I been asked to make sure I was exactly like him. Mm. So it's not a tremendous surprise that I never got the role when it became a musical in the West End. And that is why they <laughs> tell the youth of today, do what you're told, be nice until you're someone later. <laughs> yes, but of course it's really yes. difficult when you're young because as you say, it's, um, you know, it's fear. Fear drives us to do some really silly things and we don't know how to deal with that until we're a bit older. So. And I thought I already had all the answers to everything and I just thought, I thought mm. I knew better and it's a great shame and I have no idea if that would have actually made a difference and it would have ended up with me being in the show in the West End. I don't, I don't know. And I don't spend much time losing sleep over it because I'm quite happy with the career I've had. But yeah, the idea of... Um, of telling more people to fuck off. I mean, I don't think there are as many people I haven't told to fuck off in this <laughs> industry, quite frankly. Well, recently um, you were on uh, All Together Now, weren't you? And you were touted <laughs> as Mr. Grumpy. <laughs> Is that a, a national Mr. Grumpy? How was that for you? <laughs> Sometimes I think the Daily Star called me Mr. Nasty. Yeah. So when people meet me now uh, or uh, after a gig or at an intimate gig and stuff, they're really surprised about, well, they were surprised by my personality. They're surprised that I'm not like I was on altogether now. And it's kind of, 
it's quite difficult to explain to someone, and I know this is going to sound a little bit patronizing, but um, it's quite difficult to explain to someone who isn't in the industry that you can be playing a role whilst, whilst also being truthful throughout. So what I mean by that is it had been made abundantly clear to me by the television program how they wanted me to be, but they never asked me, uh, told me what to say. Right. So, so, it was, so it was abundantly clear to me that there was an opportunity to get a lot of airtime on Altogether Now by showing one particular side of my very, very real <laughs> side of my personality that they'd picked up on mm. and that they wanted to exploit and that made sense for the program and made sense for me too. It was damn clever. And I grabbed it and I said, okay, and yet, every piece of feedback I gave every contestant, the voting I did for every single contestant was 100% true, 100% honest, and I'd do it the same way again. And it's kind of hard to explain that to people because because it's a big old game show being on a TV program like that. It's mm -hmm. like being in Big Brother, really. Remember on the first series of Big Brother, they used to all sing, it's only a game show, it's only a game show, when they were trying not to go insane. It's like that, really. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, oh, you've made it now, haven't you? Can I get Bette oh, yeah. number yeah, from you? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. can get Bette Midas number. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> definitely made it, yeah. So <laughs> people are really surprised when I tell them this, but I go to village halls still and I give talks to women in their 70s and 80s from the Women's Institute of a, you know, a village five miles out of Saffron Walden. And one of them comes to collect me and I get, you know, I get a, a nice wage for that and a cup of tea and a biscuit. And then I go off again after having a couple of photos taken. And people, when I tell them that, people are so shocked and they're like, but aren't you on primetime TV these days? I'm like, well, yeah, I was for five minutes. Yeah. And now that's not happening. And I may be again. I may not be. I've no idea, but it's not like this idea of having made it, I hate that. I, whenever I used to, in the early days of things like X Factor or even pop stars and things like that, people would say, contestants, you hear them still, don't you? Saying things like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna make it. And I'm thinking, where is, where is there? Where is it? And what is it? Mm. Please explain to me. And no one has explained it to me in all the years and years and years that those programs have been on television. That it's never been unpacked for me what it is and what there is. But I'm here to tell you that being on Saturday night primetime telly on BBC One is not there or it. <laughs> <laughs> or if it is. It's quite difficult to explain what a cabaret artist is. Um, and uh, it's quite difficult for them to stop feeling, looking like they feel really sorry for you whilst you're explaining it <laughs> as well. Um, but the worst bit is after you've kind of explained what you do and told them what you do, of course, the social construct is that you have to then ask them. What do, what do you do? <laughs> uh, and I hate that question. I hate that question because for 25 plus years I've been given the same answer by everybody that I've ever spoken to and they say, oh, compared to your job, it's very boring. <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't think it is very boring what people do for a living. I find that really fascinating. What do you do for a living, my darling? Agent. Well, that's a bad example. Okay, but other... <laughs> other things, you know. I think it's fascinating what people do for a living. I find it really fascinating how people's uh, dreams and hopes have eroded over time. <laughs> and died. Due to children and mortgages. 
I class myself in this as well because uh, cabaret is a much derided art form. Let me give you an example. If, um, if you think of uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company as the Harrods of the theatre world, cabaret is very much the Claire's accessories of the theatre <laughs> Does she look younger than me? What is this explain joke? Is this some kind of joke, joke? I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. For a fumble with someone you know at sight, you kick a life around oh. Tumble with something to do at night. Do you hear the one about the one you're now without? She says, I don't know what to be. And does she look younger than me? And does my makeup look all right? Can you tell that I've been up all night? What is this explain joke? Is this some kind of joke, joke? I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm what is this explain joke? Is this some kind of joke, joke? I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. Do you hear the one about the one you're now about? Very, very hard work, you know, to, to make an hour of all together now. We can't keep, so we would uh, record in front of a live studio audience, so it was sort of as live. And we can't keep the same audience for the whole show because it takes too long to film it. So you would have 
whatever it is, 200 people in your, the audience for the first half, for the first six contestants. And then we all go off for our dinner. They all get sent home. And then a brand new audience comes in and watch the last six contestants. And so the first audience don't find out who won until it's on telly a year later. Um, so it's a long process. And before we start filming, so we start filming at about one in the afternoon and we finish at about 11 o'clock at night. And that's if nothing goes wrong. Because if any of our lights don't light up properly when we're, when we're voting for a, um, one of the acts, reset. Act has to start again, go off, have the makeup touched up, all the music cues have to go back. Every, all of our 100 seats have to be checked because one button hasn't gone off properly. Because it's the voting system, it's really important that we get it right, that they get it right. Um, uh, so if, and then if there's a tie, Oh my God, <laughs> the tie process takes so long. And there was a tie in every episode of season one. So that meant that it would take even longer. But before any of that happens, every single day, you run through all the potential songs that you might hear. So every single contestant's song, in case you want to stand up and join in, which believe it or not, I still learned them all. I still went to rehearsals for. <laughs> and series two people are like, why are you even here? Like, you never know what I'm going to like. Um, <laughs> And, and they all have at least one backup song in case there's a problem with the rights for a song. And they also have to have a sing-off song in case they get through to the final three. So for one series of All Together Now, us judges have to learn around 120 different songs. There's a lot of work. And we arrive, so we would arrive at the studio at about 8.30, 8.30, I believe, most days, camera ready in the outfit and the makeup and the hair, which takes ages for me, um, that, we want, that we wanted to be seen by the public, um, by four and a half million viewers later that day. So yeah, and I won't, I won't tell you how much we got paid, but I will tell you if you work that out on an hourly basis, it's less than minimum wage. Brilliant. So television, not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> not when there's a hundred of you to be paid for. Absolutely oh, not. No. no, no, no. You do a lot of things with your life, don't you? You do um, your courses, your performing, your creating of shows. There's, there's, there's lots that you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, that is what you really need to do as a, a cabaret performer. Can you talk us through all the different pies that you're in? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I still host events and shows, sometimes in drag, sometimes out of drag. There's sort of three personae now. The name Paulus was originally supposed to just be for my drag act, which would uh, invariably be hosting an adult-themed cabaret or burlesque show at nighttime. And then my ringmaster character slash outfit is for family-friendly events and two-day festivals, um, uh, the Queen's Jubilee celebrations, uh, the rap party for the Olympics, things like that. Big family-friendly all-day events normally. And then there's me, as people recognize me from all together now in shiny jackets and snazzy shirts, basically in trousers, still hosting corporate stuff that usually is. I do all of that. I have my own act on uh, on the cabaret scene i have uh my podcast my vlog my blog <laughs> i uh, <laughs> teach i run workshops for cabaret singers for people well i run workshops for singers on what 
cabaret can teach them. So a lot of people come along or find out about what I do and they, they sort of see the title, which is Cabaret for Singers, and they think, oh, I'm not a cabaret singer. Well, that's not really what the title said, is that Cabaret for Singers. So I teach jazz singers a lot because they don't know how to open their eyes and engage with an audience. Mm. A lot of jazzers come to me because they're petrified of audiences. I teach a lot of opera crossover performers. I get a lot of people who have, have come from a classical background but want to do something more populist with it or inject their own personality in it. And people, whether they are coming from musical theater, cabaret, opera, doesn't matter where, people come to me mostly because they don't know what to say in between songs. They're just terrified of sharing personal things about their lives. And so we, we work on that. We have different exercises that, and I do that in groups and I do also do it in one-to-one sessions as a mentor or facilitator for people. So I'm, I love that work. It's, it's very special. The letters I get now from students, um, telling me how helpful it's been or what what I've done for their career. It it means more to me than any round of applause I've ever got. The reason I do all of these things, though, is because in order to survive in the arts, you have to be able to um, diversify, really. I think for a long, long time, I thought it was a flaw that I couldn't just choose one thing and do that as well as I possibly could. And you know that old uh, phrase? Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I was being interviewed for actually my very first podcast interview uh, about five years ago now. This wonderful woman called Rosie Cole. And uh, she called me a polymath. And I'd never heard the word polymath before. And it's basically a positive, my understanding of the word polymath is it's a positive spin on master, jack of all trades, master of none. It, it takes away that, the, the master of none part mm. <laughs> away and jack of many trades, which I guess is what I am. So I've been, I've been embracing that word ever since. But without it, that diversification of one's portfolio, how on earth would you survive in the arts only mm. doing just one thing? I'm uh, I'm in awe of people that, that do. I haven't been able to do it that way. But also there's something about my broader personality that just would get bored if I did the same thing um, all the time for, you know, 20 years, 30 years. I think that I think that my audiences get a better me because I don't do this eight nights a week, eight mm. shows a week, I should say. Mm. And I think my students get a better me because I don't teach... 40 hours a week you know you've decided to write a musical about yourself you said well i didn't mean to but that is what <laughs> happened <laughs> i didn't mean yes, it. I, I woke didn't up one morning it. i didn't i woke up one morning i said let's write a musical about me no it's not really what happened um so i started working with a very talented uh, musician composer md called jordan clark and i met jordan about three or four years ago now, when he came along to my open mic night, West End Wendy's, and became one of the roster of pianists for this open mic. And he started saying to me, he found out I wrote poetry. And he said, oh, I'd love to read some of your poems. And I hadn't written anything for years. I hadn't had anything published since I was about 16. But eventually I sent him some poems and stuff. And 
nothing happened and we and I forgot all about it and then a year went by and he said oh we really should write a song together you know I read your poems I liked your poems we really should write a song and he sort of just chipped away at me over the years and then about a year and a half ago I was like all right let's meet up and have a chat and, and see where we get to and I was uh I was quite hesitant about writing with him because I'd had previously bad experiences of how of with songwriting partners that had left me um, um scarred really I suppose and a little bit burnt and and uh, I didn't want to have my time wasted or my work trampled on by another person well luckily Jordan has doesn't have the ability to trample on somebody's work or heart he, he couldn't even if he tried he is the most giving of creatives and souls that I've ever met and I have no idea why he came into my life but I am totally blessed that he did he's tremendous and he's half my age uh, and a lot of people I think think that I'm mentoring Jordan he's mentoring me <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some unknown reason he uh, he wants to work with me so I remember saying to him I don't think I want to I don't think I want to write a song with you I, I, I'm just scared about what will happen to it once I write it and he said yeah I can feel that why don't you just do it for fun there's no end goal here we'll just this is at the end of a long coffee meeting in town he said just for fun we, we, we're not going to turn this into anything more than just a little a bit of a play I said, all right, then we finished our coffee. I got on the tube and I went about, I don't know, 12 stops on the tube down to Brixton. And by the time I got off, I'd written the first song. And that was the beginning of our writing together. We have a score now, an entire score of 12 songs. And we, uh, you said musical earlier on and, and the, the shorthand is that it's, it's a musical, but I'm, I'm very, very wary of that word because it comes with a tremendous amount of specifics. Jordan's trained uh, at the Royal Academy of Music. He knows what a musical actually is. And a musical has to have certain elements to it to be a musical. And I still don't know whether I want this, this cycle of songs to be a musical. And I certainly am wary of it be, being part of a big machine. The wonderful thing about Cabaret is that you're in control. The performer can yeah. be in control. And it, you know, it does take a lot of money to put on a musical, but there are ways to do that. There's many opportunities in London. You know, there's so many theatres and there's so many fringe theatres like the Southwark and the Union and the Leicester and the Arts, and there are loads of opportunities. And I think that one thing that young musical theatre writers get, get worked up about is that they want to be on the West End. You know, that's yeah. it. When actually it's sometimes a little bit better just to tour it and make some yeah. money and if it gets in the West End great but also I don't know I just want it to exist and I want mm. to try this probably sounds tremendously naive to anyone that's written a musical and, uh, and gone into trying to get it produced in any way but I want to try and stay in control of it as much as Jordan and I can mm. um the show itself is I suppose it's it's not an anti everyone's talking about Jamie but it does um so, okay, when I when I left drama school, when I was thrown out of drama school 25 years ago now, um, there were very few jobs for a massive gayer like myself on the West End. I mean, we had 
we had rent. We had the Rocky Horror Show, obviously. So I really want just thought, well, I'll just be Frank and Furtick for the rest of my life. You know, I just assumed that would be my life. I'm not even sure whether Hairspray had come out by then. Uh, but the, but now when you think of of Kinky Boots and everyone's talking about Jamie and all of these, you know, it just okay to be a massive gay. I mean, I know gay people existed 25 years ago, but they weren't <laughs> portrayed on television or on stage or, you know, in soap operas in, uh, in, in the most diverse way that they are now. This is pre-queer as folk world we're talking about. And so there wasn't many places for me to live in musical theatre unless I was able to butch up. Jordan and I are currently calling it The Not Musical. And the versions of it that we have done until now have been called Paulus Beta or Beta. Um, but I think that will change. And uh, I suppose what it explores is a world where, when I say what you, you said earlier on that the, the show is about me, and uh, it is, it would be disingenuous of me to say that it's not in any way uh, autobiographical, but it's about a performer who, it's about a drag performer who struggles with uh, relationships, alcoholism and drug abuse. And uh, their career has um, more downs than ups and they get to their forties, you're sensing a pattern here, um, and, and start to ask, if I had been born 20 years later, um, or 25 years later, 30 years later, would I have done this? Would I have had to have cho chosen this world because this is the world that accepted me uh, as camp and as glittery as I am and acerbic as I am? Uh, or would I maybe have been an accountant or a gardener or gone into politics and it's something that really interests me is that I am forever, I will be forever grateful that the arts saved my life. Where's my crew? Where's my tribe? Who are my people? Where do I reside? Hopes and dreams are now tropes and memes calling out, calling out, calling Shirts or skins, stripy or spotted, who begins? I'm the leader, won't you follow me? Echo 
Even if I knew I belonged to you, how could I approach, risking that your ghost? Even if I knew of a song for me, What's my rising? Is this the right key? How's my phrasing? For want of making choices, I'm stuck with others' voices calling out, calling out, calling out. Just do you, but what the hell is that supposed to be? And, you know, and working with other creatives has protected me from a harsher world, a world that is harsher towards people who are other. Um, 
I do wonder if I had uh, the choice to do other things where my personality hadn't jarred so much, what I'd be, who I'd be, if I'd be happier, if things would be simpler. I don't think that you could have been anything other than your fabulous self, Mr Martin. (laughs) (laughs) And there are many people in this world that are grateful for it. So thank fuck you were born when you were born and you've done all the things (laughs) that you have done, quite frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Nikki Aitken. (laughs) (laughs) Your charity of choice, Paulus. Yeah. I'm going to choose the... Oh, I feel like I'm on Pointless Celebrities. Uh, I'm I'm going to choose uh, the Victoria Wood Foundation, which is an umbrella uh, organisation that uh, takes money that Vic left behind and uh, gives to good causes that she was involved in when she was alive. So there would be a number of different hospices and cancer charities and various things that all come under the umbrella of the Victoria Wood Foundation, please, and thank you. Fantastic. And, of course, there will be a link that... uh will go directly to Paulus. Obviously, all of the artists that come on this podcast have just lost a load of work and we are trying to raise money for them to eat immediately. So please click on the Donate Now button and get some butter on Paulus's table. Get yourself to paulelmartin.com and check out all of the wonderful things that he does and get out to see one of the shows when we all come back. The best thing you can do is I do have a mailing list on paullmartin.com or um, the Facebook group Looking For Me Friend is where people already share Victoria Wood quotes and clips and videos and silliness and lots of pictures of people who've made soup for dinner and realise that they're suddenly serving two soups and the people suddenly go, oh, I've got to photograph that and send it to Paulus. So there's lots of soup um, on there as well. So join Looking for My Friend and giggle with us. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful afternoon and I look forward to seeing you in the flesh sometime soon same time tomorrow should we do this four yeah. o'clock yeah yeah go, yeah, yeah, go to yeah. See, yeah see you then. okay i'll see yeah. you tomorrow baby okay right. Sweet. Right. Yeah. Right. thanks well, for yeah. having well, me nikki no worries darling bye <laughs> oh, bye 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 now bye bye You've been listening to Cabaret on the Couch, hosted by Nikki Aitken, and my guest this week was Paulus. For more episodes and to donate to the charities of choice and the artists themselves, please head over to www.nikkiaitken.com, Cabaret on the Couch. See you for the next one. Cabaret on the Couch is a Little Arrogance production.